Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. Today, we talk to Dr. Chris Hendrickson. If we keep going at business as usual, we're going to be incurring all sorts of costs associated with sea level rise, droughts, lack of water supplies. Uh, There's a whole host of things that are going to be happening if, in fact, we keep going along the course that we're doing and incur all the costs associated with climate change. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. Chris is the director of the Traffic 21 Institute at Carnegie Mellon University and a member of the National Academy of Engineering. Dr. Hendrickson has been involved in TRB and the academies in several capacities, including as a TRB executive board member. He recently contributed to a National Academy's report, Accelerating Decarbonization in the U.S. Energy System. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, Dr. Hendrickson. We're, we're so happy to have you. The National Academy is, as you know, is, is focused on four major priorities. Uh, and, and they're the same ones as the, the Biden administration right now. Climate change is one of those four areas. And this report, which you are a, a part of a committee that produced it, is all about getting the U.S. to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in the transportation, electricity, buildings, and industry, industrial sectors. And what does net zero mean? And what are the ways the transportation industry can get there? Well, I'll give you a long answer to that question because it takes, takes a little while. First, let's start with net zero. We need to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases in the United States to a level where greenhouse gases are being uptaken or stored by plants or artificial means technologies of some kind or another. That means we've got to do a lot of reduction in emissions. Uh, The U.S. right now emits six gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's a thousand million tons of uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And the goal uh, that's outlined in the report is to try and change those emissions uh, to be net zero within 30 years. So uh, that's a major undertaking for all of us. Now, transportation is really important in this regard uh, because transportation is now the single largest sector for greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Uh, It used to be the power generation sector, but they've been investing in renewable energy uh, generation quite extensively. And so now transportation still dependent on petroleum has become the largest sector for greenhouse gas emissions. So we've got to kind of do a major haul in the transportation sector to achieve a net zero goal. So what can we do? Well, I'll give you a uh, multi-point plan. First thing is improve efficiency and energy use in transportation. This is something that we've been working on for a long time, uh, but there's still more we can do. The pandemic has shown that biking is surging and biking is a very energy efficient 
uh, mode of transportation. Getting more energy efficient vehicles out on the road will help. Encouraging shared rides of one kind or another, which is going to be tough given that there are some pandemic concerns about sharing rides with strangers. But those are all things that can be done to try and improve the energy efficiency of transportation. Second uh, uh, major strategy is to electrify transportation uh, as much as possible to go to zero emissions. We were all stunned by the General Motors uh, announcement that they were going to go all battery electric by 2035, which is great. Uh, and that falls into this category of electrifying transportation. But in addition to light duty vehicles, we've got to do medium and heavy duty vehicles. We've got to do trains. We can build catenary for trains to run off of electricity. Uh, we can do a lot to try and use batteries uh, for transportation. Now, at the same time that transportation is moving to electrification, we've got to do things about the power generation sector too at the same time. So what you need to do is to have the power generation sector move to all renewable energy so that they're net zero. And they've got to have the capability to actually power all that transportation that we're switching off of petroleum. So you got to have the two things working together uh, to make the electrification uh, strategy work. In addition to the batteries, there's a possibility that fuel cells might be important in the future. Battery electric vehicles tend to be cheaper. In fact, they're becoming lower cost per mile than internal combustion engines. Uh, they just happen to have a, a higher capital cost. So we've got to worry about how we make them affordable. Fuel cells similarly have uh, potential, but they tend to be fairly expensive. So they have a uh, much greater range than a battery electric, but uh, they have a heavy capital cost to put in place. And so one of the things that we'll be watching over the next decade or two is this competition in the marketplace between battery electric and fuel cell vehicles to see which one is gonna come out of and be uh, widely used. The third strategy is to invest in infrastructure. We need to have electric vehicle charging stations available to all those vehicles that are gonna be battery electric. We need to have better real-time controls to achieve transportation efficiency. Things like adaptive traffic signals, I'm a big fan of because they can really reduce congestion in urban areas. Vehicle production and vehicle maintenance are gonna need investment because we're switching over from a well-established internal combustion engine production setup to one where we're relying on battery electric vehicles. And so there's gonna be battery manufacturing, different engines on different maintenance procedures that are gonna be needed. Fourth strategy that's in the study is to invest in research for innovation. Uh, and this is something that has been successful in the past. The reason battery electric vehicles are cost competitive now is that there's been a great deal of research on new battery uh, chemistries, for example, that have been sponsored by Department of Energy and private companies. Some of the things that we could really use are cost-effective, net zero emission drop-in fuels uh, for things like long distance aircraft. That's gonna be a problem over the long run when we're moved back into the air after the pandemic. 
and we need to try and get our aircraft sector to net zero somehow. And so changing the fuel from petroleum to a net zero fuel of some kind would be really useful. Vehicle batteries, they are still improving. Uh, they're getting better in terms of, of cost effectiveness and in terms of range. And I think there's probably quite a bit of improvement that can still be wrung out of the battery packs uh, for vehicles and uh, make them more efficient and uh, more useful for, for drivers. By the way, I think the Transportation Research Board has a major role to play in this uh, research for innovation. And so it's gonna be on our agenda as TRB members uh, for the next few decades. The fifth thing that uh, the report really emphasizes is that in addition to the sort of technical changes that I've been just talking about, we also need to pursue shared socioeconomic goals at the same time. And so policies that are put in place to transform into this net zero energy sector also have to consider socioeconomic issues. Let me give you a, a few of them. We need to strengthen the US economy. We'd like to have battery production here in the United States rather than over in China. Uh, so we need to try and build up a business of, of battery manufacturing. We need to promote equity and inclusion so that uh, we're not leaving behind low income people in this drive to electric vehicles. So we need some way of making those vehicles affordable to people with lower incomes. We need to uh, support communities, businesses, and workers. Uh, and that's particularly the case for uh, communities that are dependent upon fossil fuels in some fashion, coal mining communities, oil drilling communities. Uh, they need help in, in the transition out of what is, is business as usual using fossil fuels to a net zero uh, society. Uh, and the other thing we do is always keep an eye on cost effectiveness. I've kind of emphasized that, gee, battery electric vehicles are uh, becoming cost effective uh, and that makes them really interesting for this sort of transformation. At the same time, renewable energy is becoming cost effective compared to fossil fuel generation. So I have one question, Dr. Hendrickson. Did the report or did, did the committee look at how, how realistic these recommendations are knowing that you know the US is still uh, is still got a lot of coal-fired power plants out there and and we we need to shift and even the uh, the electrical and the batteries and the EVs electric vehicles that electricity is running off of in many times coal-fired power plants so one how do we how do we make that shift and two if you were advising the Biden administration or Congress, which in some ways this report will hopefully do, where do you really think you need to focus on with, with him and, and with Congress to, to get policy really going? Well, let's start with the coal-fired power plants. This report had a 30-year horizon. Over the course of 30 years, a lot of those coal-fired power plants are going to be retired and they're going to be retired for functionality reasons because it is wear out. They're also going to be retired because it's cheaper to generate electricity with renewable sources than it is to use coal-fired plants uh, in the future. And so it's going to be a natural business decision by a lot of power generation companies to, to start retiring those plants and moving. 
In terms of policies, let me, let me focus on the policies that are really important for transportation. First, the report recommends putting in place a price on carbon emissions somewhat commensurate with the damages that are coming in from greenhouse gas emissions. That means that the petroleum that's going into your uh, motor vehicles is going to be more expensive because it's a source of greenhouse gas emissions. That change alone is going to drive quite a bit of a change over to the net zero uh, vehicles that I was talking about. Another way that policy could affect that sort of a change is to put in place uh, requirements for net zero vehicles. And of course, California has been a pioneer in doing that over the course of years and is farther along than a lot of other states in, in electrifying the fleet. Those sorts of changes could really impact, make it this whole transition feasible over a period of time as you start to retire things like vehicles and buy new ones. What you want to avoid is scrapping vehicles that are still good. You want to get their full lifetime of use and then switch over to a net zero sort of vehicle. The other thing that's in the report is a number of ideas about research that could really help transportation. Uh, I mentioned, for example, the net zero drop-in fuels for long-distance aircraft. There are a number of other things that can be helpful for transportation, like battery research. And so that's another way that over a period of time, you can really affect change. I just had one last follow-up, which is the way the National Academies and, and the Transportation Research Board operate is, is interesting in and of itself in that it, it tends to get the, the best experts from the fee, any given field to get together and meet and discuss and then write a report and come up with recommendations, maybe testify to Congress, uh, all kinds of things they can do. Other than that, how, what, what do you think makes this report really important and, and interesting? And a lot of the things in it are, are things we've known, but is it just that it's all compiled in one place and, and sort of presents a blueprint that makes it so important? Well, there are numerous studies of net zero transitions for the United States, for states, for the European Union, for Southeast Asia, all sorts of studies that have been going on. What is new and different about this report, I think, are the specific policy recommendations that I was just talking about. And we wanted the report to be a policy guide for Congress and for the Biden administration and for state and local government and for business. And so uh, we're trying to come up with policy prescriptions that could be implemented in the next few years. The other thing that's different about this report is the emphasis on those socioeconomic goals that I mentioned. It's our belief that without pursuing those socioeconomic goals at the same time you're pursuing uh, transitional technologies, the transition would not be politically acceptable. And so doing the socioeconomic things, you think it's, gee, that's an add-on, but in terms of developing the political will to actually make this change, I think it's really important. The other thing that's kind of different about this report, I mean, you mentioned bringing together the experts. By the way, I would say that the staff is equally important. The staff at uh, the National Research Council are really terrific, including you two. But the uh, other important aspect of this report is it's been peer reviewed. Uh, there were dozens of reviewers that came in and made specific comments. And I think that improved the report. Uh, and so many of the other net zero studies that you look at have not gone through that 
rigorous peer review process. So I think all of those are new. And I think it is a, a, a document that's very dense, hard to read, but it does bring a lot of things together in one place. Well, that's why we have things like podcasts so we can have people <laughs> like you on to translate it for, for us and, and, uh, and lots of people. And uh, you, you mentioned earlier California being a pioneer. I think another pioneer we need to keep in mind is you. In the early 1990s, I think it was, you basically pioneered green design. So it's not a new idea, as you know. But now, as climate change gets more and more pressing, how has the idea of green design changed? Well, uh, first off, the, the name changed to a certain extent. Uh, nowadays, people talk about sustainable engineering. And sustainable engineering is essentially the old green design, uh, just with a, a, a different name. The central ideas of green design were to prevent pollution and to use non-renewable resources more sustainably throughout the life of a product. And uh, it was new back when I started getting into that because traditional environmental engineering was really interested in uh, uh, pollution treatment rather than pollution prevention. Uh, so that there was a lot of attention on things about devices to put on to reduce air emissions uh, or wastewater treatment. Uh, whereas the idea in, in green design was to try and change things so that the pollution wasn't caused. Uh, and a good example of that are those battery electric vehicles that I was talking about where you don't have a lot of pollution coming out of the tailpipe. And of course, Nowadays, climate change is really important. And so uh, one of the main pollutants that we worry about is greenhouse gases. Um, greenhouse gases are very large in terms of the, the damages they call. They're global in nature. And so they deserve a heck of a lot of attention. But other sources of pollution equally merit some attention. For example, there was just a, a National Academy study on things that could be done to reduce lead emissions from general aviation. I didn't know it before I read the study, but general aviation is still having lead in the petrol, in the gasoline it uses, the aviation fuel. And so all those general aviation planes are spewing out some lead with everything else. Well, thanks for plugging that report for us. What would you say to someone who says, and I'm asking you this because you have a master's in economics, so I imagine you have good insight into this. So what would you say to someone who says that environmental sustainability in engineering is too expensive or it takes too long or it's not worth it in the long run? Well, I would say that there's an awful lot of examples where designing to avoid pollution can be more cost effective. I didn't dwell on the costs of climate change because there are lots and lots of press reports to stories about the cost of climate change. But if we keep going at business as usual, we're gonna be incurring all sorts of costs associated with sea level rise, droughts, lack of water supplies. Uh, there's a whole host of things that are going to be happening if, in fact, we keep going along the course that we're doing and incur all the costs associated with climate change. This report that details a possible transition to net zero. Uh, sir, sure, there are some costs associated with that, but they are not uh, comparable to the costs that we would incur if climate change kept going. There are a lot of other examples. I mean, I, I, I sit here in Pennsylvania and I worry about the long-term costs associated with the uh, fracking wells 
Uh, we've had examples of abandoned gas wells from other energy booms, and we're still dealing with those kind of legacy costs associated with that uh, type of activity. Uh, you, you, you asked about how long it takes. Well, research takes a while <laughs> in just about anything, including uh, green design or sustainable engineering. I mentioned the uh, state we're in now with respect to vehicle batteries. That was decades of research that led to the cost-effective lithium-ion batteries that are now commercially available. So it does take a while, but it can make a difference over a period of time. And so starting now to make the sorts of changes we need to uh, transition to a net zero energy future, I think is really important. Let's go backwards a little bit in time. We like to ask this question on our podcast because it's it's always interesting to see where scientists and, and educators and experts in their field sort of got the bug. Why are climate change and transportation important to you? And, and how did you first get interested in these topics as, as a career? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. So transportation has always been an interest of mine. Even when I was a little kid, I used to really enjoy working on the cars with my father, tuning them up, changing the spark plugs, all that stuff that you really can't do anymore because it's all uh, computer-based rather than mechanical-based. And I also traveled around quite a bit. My father was in the Coast Guard, and so we moved from place to place every three, four years or so. And so I got familiar with a lot of transportation, and I thought, gee, this is an interesting topic, and I bet you you can do some improvements, and it's important for society. And so for all those reasons, I kind of pursued a, a career in transportation, and I've uh, looked at different aspects of it over time. One was just straight transportation systems. Another, I got involved in construction for quite a bit of time and computer aids for construction. And then as Elaine was pointing out, I got interested in green design and pollution prevention. You asked specifically about climate change. What got me going on that was uh, trips to Glacier National Park. And uh, these were just vacation trips. I used to enjoy going to national parks. I still enjoy going to national parks and hiking. And you could just see old pictures of the glaciers from the early parts of the 20th century. And they were much, much larger glaciers than they are today. And glaciers are retreating as the globe gets warmer, the climate gets warmer. And that's happening around the globe. And that's what started me thinking, gee, climate change is really a serious issue. And then I started going to a whole bunch of seminars that are offered at Carnegie Mellon and uh, kind of really looking at the scientific data on the topic. And I said, yeah, this is something that's worth working on. <laughs> well, I think you've pretty thoroughly covered the research that is needed and that is currently going on about climate change. Is there any other research you see that maybe the report didn't have time to cover that we haven't talked about. In addition to the climate change things that I do, uh, another topic of research I've been involved in is the impact and policy towards connected and automated vehicles. And that's a disruptive technology that is really going to affect the transportation world over the next couple of decades. And at this point, we really haven't developed uh, the necessary policy framework uh, for how those 
connected and automated vehicles are actually going to join into the transportation system. We don't have a good handle on what their impact is going to be. Just one example, it's unclear whether the connected and automated vehicles are going to be privately owned uh, as primarily things are now or whether they're going to be used in fleets in uh, shared mode service. I suspect they're going to be both. <laughs> but uh, the marketplace and policy decisions are gonna influence that uh, over the next couple of decades. So that's a, I would say it's a pressing area for research. Okay, well, Dr. Henderson, it's been so great to have you with us. We know that you are such a valuable volunteer member of uh, TRB's executive committee and so many other committees and so many other organizations in the transportation world that we are honored that you found time to have a little time for us today. We talked about a lot of stuff here today. Say you get 30 seconds in an elevator with the new U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. If you had 30 seconds with him, what would, what would you say that maybe he needs to focus on? I would say that he needs to uh, start talking to the Department of Energy, uh, and he needs to start talking to the Federal Communications Commission about coordinating activities to make transportation work a lot more effectively than it has in the past. And I think this report uh, really shows that where you've got to have this change in the power generation sector at the same time as the change in the transportation sector uh, where you're electrifying. Well, let's hope that this podcast passes that information along to him if, if you don't do it yourself. And we thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. TRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.